You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I have yet to meet an individual who has a proper assessment of themselves. And I say this of you, and I say this of myself as well. We tend by nature to think more highly of ourselves and to overestimate our giftedness and to underestimate our wickedness. And we tend to have this picture of ourselves or we think of ourselves like we want to be rather than like we are. We put up this veneer and Christians come to churches every Sunday morning. You do it and I do it. And we put on a face that say everything, that says everything is fine, everything is okay, and even though there are adversities in our life and things that try us and test us, we cover up the person that we really are with this thin veneer, and we hide that person that is inside of us that really is us. In other words, we mask our hearts. Our hearts are wicked, they are sinful, they are bitter, they are angry, they are resentful, They resist God. They hate righteousness. That is who we really are inside. And yet we have been redeemed. We have been changed. And we have a new nature that fights against that. And we tend to want to cover up the true condition of our hearts, which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we try to cover that up and present something of ourselves that really is not true. The Lord has this wonderful way of bringing things into our life that strips us of that thin veneer. He has a way of sort of unmasking the heart and displaying it for us to see and for everybody else who might be around us to see. And His wonderful way of doing that is through adversity. When difficulties come, when suffering comes, when adversity comes into our lives, The Lord uses those things to put us in the pressure cooker and it sort of cooks off that veneer and our heart begins to manifest itself. Does this happen to you in traffic, in your day-to-day life, with your family, with your kids? All of a sudden, difficult things happen, difficult times come, and then you get a, a sudden glimpse of your heart as you realize just how wicked, just how angry, just how deceitful that heart is and desperately wicked above all things. I, for one, am thankful that the Lord allows those things to come into our lives for the purpose of revealing to us what our hearts are really like. I'm grateful that God allows suffering and our circumstances and adversity and difficulties to strip away the veneer so we can see our hearts and ourselves for what they really are and then we can repent of it and then we can pray for the grace to change that thing that we hate And pray that God would indeed change that thing that we hate. And we can be drawn closer to the Lord as we realize just how desperately in need of grace we are. One of the magnificent things about the Apostle Paul is that it did not matter whether it was good times or whether it was bad times. He was the same person. He was the same in the good life as he was when difficulties and adversities and sufferings came his way. We don't see and read about Paul in the good times and have one Apostle Paul and then read about him when suffering comes and see a different person. In the good times and in the bad times, in the high life and in the low life, Paul was Paul. And it didn't matter what happened to him. You could almost predict the response. 
you could almost predict what was going to happen because when the adversities came and you saw the heart of the Apostle Paul, and this is not to suggest that his part was not deceitful and desperately wicked, but when you saw the heart of the Apostle Paul, you saw somebody who was consistent. Consistent in his behavior and consistent in his response in good and in bad. Now we've seen the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 21 endure a tremendous amount of suffering at the hands of the Jews and unjust suffering at that. But friends, in this passage that we're looking at at the end of Acts chapter 22, the Apostle Paul's circumstances take a turn for the worse. And it's interesting to notice his response. And you'll need to have your Bibles in your laps open to the book of Acts chapter 22. We're going to look at how the Apostle Paul responds when life goes south. It's almost gotten as bad as you and I can imagine. I mean, one minute he's walking about in the city of Jerusalem, going freely about his business, without being harassed or interfered with in any way. He's in the temple participating in a ceremonial ritual which should demonstrate to all of the Jews who are present that he's not hostile to the people, he's not hostile to the law, he's not hostile to the temple. And in the midst of fulfilling his Nazarite vow while he's in the temple, a group of Jews from Asia see him there, and they seize him, and they accuse him, saying, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against our law, and against our temple. And besides that, he has defiled this holy place by bringing Greeks into the temple. Now, all of those things were false. And they drug him outside of the temple, and they shut the gates of the temple so that he couldn't go back into the temple, and they proceeded to beat him with the intention of killing him. They were going to beat him to death. And Lysias, who was commander of the Roman cohort in Jerusalem, from that temple, uh, the barracks that was built right into the wall of the temple, from his position in there, somebody reported to him that there was a riot breaking out in the temple because there were thousands of Jews in the temple during Pentecost, and now there is a disturbance of some sort. Lysias can't tell who's at the bottom of it or what has happened, but with centurions and 200-plus soldiers, he rushes down into the temple complex, and there he gets to the heart of the controversy, and he sees this disheveled, battered, beaten man whom he doesn't know, he's never met him before, and the crowd stops beating Paul when Lysias showed up, and Lysias delivers Paul from the hands of the Jews. And you remember Lysias asked, Who are you and what have you done? He's asking Paul that. He's trying to get to the bottom of this whole disturbance. This is back in chapter 21. And the crowd begins to shout one thing, some one thing and some another, and he can't get to the bottom of it. So he determines to take Paul into the barracks. And when he gets to the steps of the barracks, the apostle Paul asks him to address the crowd. Lysias thinks to himself, if I give him a chance to address the Jews, it would help me to discern what the problem is with him. So he gives Paul permission, and Lysias and all of these Roman soldiers become an audience as the apostle Paul gives his defense to the Jews. And it got worse once the Apostle Paul from the midst of the temple suggested that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would actually call him to minister to Gentiles. Acts chapter 22, verse 21 says that Jesus told him, "For when Go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. Now as we look at verses 22 to 30, I want you to notice three things. I want you to notice the danger that the Apostle Paul faced the deliverance that God brought him, and then a decision that Lysias made. Look at the danger that Paul faced in verses 22 to 24. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. 
They listened to him up until he mentioned Gentiles. And then the crowd began to shout for his blood. They wanted his head. They wanted him dead. Away with this man. From the face of the earth, he shouldn't be allowed to live. Now Paul at that moment realized that the intention of the crowd and the desire of the crowd was to see him die. And they began to tear off their cloaks and throw dust up into the air. Now what's going on with that? Why do they do that? There's one of two things that is meant by that. One of two things that's going on here. First, it may be that they are taking off their cloaks like they would in the case of a stoning. And because they can't stone the Apostle Paul, they are going to symbolically stone him. And they begin to pick up dust and throw it at the Apostle Paul. They've taken off their cloaks like they did when they stoned Stephen. And they gave them to Saul or Paul. So they've taken off their cloaks and they've picked up dust and they're throwing dust at Paul. They can't really stone him because there's 200 plus Roman soldiers standing in the temple precinct that have calmed down this riot. And so what they're doing is they're expressing symbolically what they would love to do. We would love to stone you. And they would stone him to death if they had the chance and the opportunity, but they can't because the soldiers are there. That may be what is being said. They took off their cloaks and began throwing dust at him, symbolically saying, we want to stone you. There's something else that it might mean. It may be that by this action, what the Jews are saying is uh, similar to what they would do when they would dust their feet off after coming from a Gentile nation back into the Promised Land. They would dust the, they would knock the dust off of their feet lest they polluted the promised land. And what they were doing was, in a sense, saying we are not going to pollute our holy land by bringing dust of idolatrous, pagan, God-rejecting nations into our holy land. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was in um, the Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13 and the Jews persecuted and blasphemed him and his message there and Paul shook out his garments? He said, your blood be upon your own head. You've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life for going to the Gentiles. What he was doing was dusting off his garments. And when he left the synagogue, he was essentially saying, I don't want any of this idolatrous pagan dirt leaving the synagogue with me. It was a symbol of showing your contempt and your disgust. And it was, to the Jew, it was a way of saying, you're an idolater. You're a blasphemer for suggesting this. It may be that what's going on is they're taking off their cloaks and they're shaking them in the air and throwing dust up in the air as if to say, we're shaking out our garments of your dust. You're no better than a Gentile. You're not even a true Jew. You're just a blasphemous, idolatrous pagan. It may be that that's what that symbolizes. Now, whether they want to stone him with stones or whether they're calling him a blasphemous Jew, you can clearly see how the crowd feels about the Apostle Paul, can't you? That's what they're doing. Throwing dust up in the air and shaking out their garments, calling for his blood. They want to kill him. Now, the minute Lysias sees the crowd begin to break out, you can see in verse 23, as they were crying out and throwing off their garments and their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Now, that's where Lysias was headed with the Apostle Paul when Paul stopped to address the crowd. Do you remember he bound him with two chains down in the courtyard of the temple? And when he began to ask the Apostle Paul, who are you and what have you done? The crowd began to shout out one thing and some another. And Lysias said, I can't get to the bottom of this here. He was going to take Paul into the barracks. So he got to the stairs of the barracks. Do you remember the soldiers had to carry him because of the violence of the mob? So they began to pick up the Apostle Paul and carry him up the stairs into the barracks to get him away from the crowd. And that's when Paul said to Lysias, may I say something to you? And Lysias said, you speak Greek? He was surprised. And Paul asked if he could address the crowd. And so that whole address was from the stairs of the barracks. Now when the crowd breaks out after the address, Lysias recognizes we had to get him out of this crowd into the barracks so we're going to interrogate him inside. So they take him all the way up the barracks and they take him inside and Lysias gives the orders to examine him, to interrogate him by scourging. Now why did Lysias want to interrogate the Apostle Paul? Why was it? 
He's trying to find out what is at the cause of this riot. His responsibility is civic peace, keeping the peace. And he still doesn't know what the riot was about. He tried asking Paul down in the crowd, and the crowd started shouting out one thing and some another. He thought Paul was an Egyptian terrorist who had led the revolt and led all those people out into the wilderness from the band of the assassins. Do you remember that? He misjudged the Apostle Paul. He thought he had figured out what it was about. Then Paul asked to address the crowd, and Lysias must have thought to himself, this will help me discern what the mob is, the mob riot was started by. So he lets Paul address the crowd. He gets to the end of the address, and he's no closer to an answer than he was when he began. So finally, Lysias throws up his hands and says, take him inside and interrogate him with scourging. And listen, I want you to understand what the Apostle Paul is facing. Scourging was not the same as being beaten with lashes. And scourging was not the same as being beaten with rods. A scourging was when a Roman official took what was called a flagellum, which was a a handle of a whip about 18 inches, 12 to 18 inches long. And attached to the end of that whip were long braided leather strands. And braided into the leather were chunks of bone and sharp metal, sharp bone, and balls of lead. And the lead balls would serve to bruise the back of the victim or the front of the victim that was being scourged and the sharp pieces of metal and bone would literally tear, cut, and rip the flesh. Uh, ancient writers described a scourging victim as literally having ba- uh, bands or strips of meat hanging from their back when they were done. It would turn the back of a victim into hamburger. We get, our, we get a word flagellation from this word flagellum. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that is the punishment that Jesus suffered before his crucifixion. Uh, uh, Scourge victims would often die just from the scourging, either from a lack of blood or from the infection that would follow. And if a scourge victim managed to survive a scourging, they were likely either incapacitated or handicapped in some way, crippled in some way for life. It was that brutal of a practice. Now the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about the times that he was beaten. He says that he was in far more labors and far more imprisonments. Listen to this beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. So five times I was beaten with 30, received 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, and he says beatings without number. He numbers eight of them. Those were formal beatings. But listen, when it comes to just being beaten up and just being harassed and just being physically abused, the Apostle Paul says it was without number. I lost count of that didn't know how many times he had received that kind of suffering. But there were eight of them that he could count. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. That was the penalty in the synagogue where they would take a whip and they would beat them 39 times. Now the law prescribed that they could do it 40. You say, why did they only do it 39? They did it 39 just in case they miscounted. They didn't want to give them 41 and break the law, so they would give them 39. That kind of gave them some wiggle room. So in case they got in there and said, was it 25 or 26? I can't remember which one that was. Well, we've got one to spare, so let's make sure that we don't screw up the count from this point forward, and they would only give him 39. The Apostle Paul suffered that five different times. Just like the Apostles in Acts chapter 5, after Gamaliel calmed down the Sanhedrin, it says that they brought all the Apostles in, and they flogged them, and then they let them go with orders not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame. They had received the 39 lashes. Paul says, that happened to me five times. He was whipped Five times with 39 lashes. There was three times that he was beaten with rods, like what happened in Philippi when Silas and Paul were beaten with rods in front of the magistrate and then they were put in prison for the night. That happened to Paul three different times. We know of one time that it happened. We're not talking about being beaten with rods. 
And we're not talking about being lashed in the synagogues. And we're not talking about just beatings without number. We are talking about a punishment. We are talking about a life-threatening situation that would be the worst thing that the Apostle Paul had ever faced or would ever face in all of his life, and it would likely kill him. It would likely kill him. It's almost 60 years old. can't handle a lashing like that. That's what he's facing. They wanted to interrogate him with lashings. That is the danger that, uh, with a scourging. That is the danger that the Apostle Paul faced. Now, did he panic? Did he scream? Did he cry? Did he start to whine and whimper? I don't think he did. Look at the deliverance that God brought to him. Beginning in verse 25. Verse 24 says, Lysias was trying to determine why the Jews were shouting out against him. Verse 25, when they stretched him out with thongs. Now, literally four thongs or for the, for the scourge is literally what it means. They stretched him out and they would do this in one of two ways. They would either take the victim's hands like this and they would wrap their arms around a, a large colonnade or a large column or a rock. And that would stretch the skin across their back really tight. And that would ma- ma- make for maximum pain, maximum torment, maximum blood loss. So they would either do that or they would, having had their hands bound together, they would hoist them up till their feet were dangling off the ground and then they would just like a pinata, they would just whip them until they confessed what they wanted to confess. And the Apostle Paul is put in one of those two positions. He's either hoisted or he's stretched out across the rock and just as the centurion is about to carry out Lysias' orders to interrogate him with scourging, the Apostle Paul asks a very calm, very searching, very dignified question. Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? (gasps) Oh. Now listen, I don't think the Apostle Paul was worried about the danger that he faced for two reasons. One, because he trusted completely in the sovereignty of God and he knew that God would not allow anything to come into his life that was not for his good and God's glory. But second of all, the Apostle Paul had an ace up his sleeve. It wasn't a foolproof ace, but it was an ace. And just as he is about to be scourged, he asks the centurion who's overseeing the scourging, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman who is uncondemned? Now that stopped all of the proceedings right in their tracks. Every centurion and every Roman soldier that was in that room who listened to that statement had to have had this sinking feeling in their stomach because Lysias and his men had overlooked this one little tiny detail. Paul was a Roman citizen. And it was illegal to scourge a Roman citizen. Not only that, but it was illegal to put a Roman citizen in chains without proper charges. And here Lysias has chained this man and he has stretched him out for scourging, having never thought to ask the question, might you be a Roman citizen? And the Apostle Paul says, is it legal to scourge me since I'm a Roman and I haven't even been condemned? A Roman citizen could not be punished. Paul pulls out his ace out of his sleeve and everybody had to stop. And the commander stopped. And the commander realized, we've misjudged this man. Now remember, Lysias has done this twice. Lysias has misjudged the Apostle Paul twice. The first one was sort of a minor thing. You speak Greek, he said in chapter 21. Do you remember that? Well, you're not that Egyptian terrorist who some time ago led the revolt and then took the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. He thought he had the one of Rome's most wanted criminals on his hands. He misjudged him. This time he misjudged him in that he thought he was just this common, vagrant, criminal Jew and not a Roman citizen. Now what if Lysias or the centurion had lashed the Apostle Paul and scourged the Apostle Paul? You know what would have happened to them? 
likely the centurion and Lysias would have lost their life. It was a capital crime to punish or to torture a Roman citizen who had not stood trial, had not been condemned, and had not been sentenced. Lysias would have lost his life. At the very least, Lysias would have lost his own Roman citizenship, and Lysias would have lost his career as commander of the Roman cohort, but likely he would have been killed. Cicero said, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime and to flog him is an abomination. He simply didn't treat Roman citizens like the way that they were treating the Apostle Paul. So when Paul says it's illegal to condemn, to scourge a Roman citizen who is uncondemned, everything comes to a screeching halt. Now you say, but they're just taking him at face value. He's claimed Roman citizenship. What, do they just assume that he's telling the truth? Roman citizens didn't look any different than non-citizens. Paul certainly didn't have the looks or appearances of a Roman citizen. Are they just going to take his word for it? And the answer is yes, they did. Because it was a crime, a capital crime, to claim to be a Roman citizen if you weren't. So if the Apostle Paul is not a Roman citizen, they're going to kill him. But if he is a Roman citizen and they abuse him or violate his rights, they're going to get killed. So anytime somebody claimed to be a Roman citizen, the proceedings stopped and they came to a screeching halt until that could be investigated. But they're in the city of Jerusalem, right, where Paul was an infant, or not an infant, but he was raised and educated, and where he was grew up in that city, educated by Gamaliel. All of his friends were there. They could confirm his status as a Roman citizen that quickly. Wouldn't have taken any time at all. They're in Paul's hometown. It's a quick check of the records. But at least it's enough to stop the proceedings. Why? If they violate his rights, they're dead. And you did not, you did not claim to be a Roman citizen if you weren't. Because that was your, that was your death certificate. You were signed, sealed, and delivered to the morgue if you ever did that. So they did take those claims at face value. The commander rushed down to Lysias and he said, look, take care of what you're about to do to this man. He's a Roman. Now, can you imagine what Lysias' response to that is? You gotta be kidding me. Is a Roman? He's a Roman citizen? And Lysias rushed down into the barracks to find this out for himself. And look what he says to the Apostle Paul. The commander came to him, verse 27, and says, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul says, But I was actually born a citizen. Now, verse 28 is kind of a, a weird verse in that we know what Lysias is claiming, but we don't know exactly what he means by his claim. Let me illustrate it. What is Lysias saying? He's saying, I got my, my citizenship with a large sum of money. Now, there were two ways to become a Roman citizen. You could be born a Roman citizen, which we find out that's how Paul got his citizenship. He was born a citizen. You could be born a citizen by virtue of the fact that your parents were citizens. Or you could have citizenship bestowed upon you by the Roman government for some service, some valuable service rendered to the empire. For instance, they would sometimes conquer cities. And if they found in that city somebody who had led a revolt to overthrow the city and hand it into the hands of the Romans, they would bestow citizenship on people who had rendered such a valuable service to the empire. Rather than giving them the Congressional Medal of Honor or the Purple Heart, they would give them Roman citizenship. We do that today in our, in our military. We honor people who give valuable uh, contributions to our country or to our society, and that's what they did in Rome. But they would bestow on them citizenship. There were two ways. Birth or by reward. Now, if you didn't happen to be born a Roman citizen, and you hadn't happened to do anything that was worthy of being rewarded, there was always another way. Because in Paul's day, just like in our day, money talks. 
If you knew the right people, and you had the right amount of money, and you had the connections, you could, for a large sum, purchase your citizenship. Now, officially, citizenship was not for sale. But we all know that if you have enough money, you can do what? Anything. Anything is for sale. So Lysias says, I bought my citizenship. I acquired my citizenship with a large sum of money. He got it through bribery. He got it through scandal. In Acts chapter 23, I think it's verse 26, we get his full name. It's Claudius Lysias. Claudius was the name of the emperor under whom Lysias would have received his citizenship. And in the reign of Claudius, everybody knew that sale and bribery and sale of citizenships had reached epidemic proportions. It was scandalous. And so Lysias, when he became a Roman citizen, took the name Claudius Lysias in honor of the emperor under whose reign he had been able to bribe himself into citizenship. Now here's the question. Why does Claudius Lysias bring this up? Why does he mention this at all? What is he saying? What does he mean to the Apostle Paul by this? Why does he say it? One of three things. Three possibilities. It may be that Lysias is simply noting the value of Roman citizenship. In other words, he says to the Apostle Paul, are you a Roman? And Paul says, yes, I am. And Lysias is saying, in essence, wow. I mean, I acquired mine with a large sum of money. That's a valuable thing to be a Roman citizen. That's that's a pretty nice achievement. That's a pretty nice uh, sort of badge of honor that you're able to wear. It is, a, it is a valuable thing to be a Roman citizenship. Just noting the value of being a citizen itself. It may be that Lysias, by his comment, means that he is expressing relief at having not thrown away his own citizenship. Because if he had scourged the Apostle Paul, and Paul was a citizen, Lysias would have lost his own citizenship. So it's almost as if Lysias is saying this, Are you a Roman? Yes, I am. Man, I'm glad I didn't throw away my citizenship by scourging you, because I paid a hefty sum of money for my citizenship. It could be that Lysias is saying that. It might be that he is simply noting the value of citizenship. It might be that he is expressing relief that he didn't throw his away by scourging the Apostle Paul. Or third, and I think this is what Lysias is driving at, I think it is a sarcastic comment. Are you a Roman? Yeah, I am. Anybody can become a Roman citizen today. I paid money to get mine. He obviously thought the Apostle Paul was a common criminal who had enough money to buy his citizenship. In other words, he's lamenting the fact that the value of citizenship had dropped to such a level that an individual like the Apostle Paul could actually get in on the citizenship thing. Anybody can become a citizen nowadays. You just have enough money and you can bribe your way in. I bought mine with a large sum of money. Citizenship means nothing. It's become so common, it's devalued. Since everybody has it, it's not worth anything anymore. Everybody's a citizen. Even a common vagrant criminal like yourself. In fact, Lysias, I think, is being sarcastic and he is suggesting to Paul that Paul must have bought his citizenship. That's why Paul responds by saying, no, I was actually born a citizen. Are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. That's nothing. I bought mine. Paul says, no, I'm, I didn't bribe my way into citizenship. I actually had mine bestowed by virtue of my birth. I was born a citizen. I think that's what Lysias is saying. He's just lamenting that citizenship means nothing. I bought mine with a large sum of money. And obviously any common criminal, vagrant, disgusting Jew like yourself who could start a riot could buy your own citizenship as well. Paul says, no, I, I didn't buy mine. I was actually born a citizen. Now once Lysias found that out, he realized that his citizenship, that is Paul's citizenship, trumped his own. He realized he was standing in the presence of somebody who was far more noble than he was. He had bribed to get his citizenship, and here the Apostle Paul had his own by virtue of his birth. Look at verse 29. 
Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him, or they left him. In other words, they unbound him. Once they heard that he was a citizen and that he was born a citizen, all of a sudden every centurion, every soldier, every commander in those barracks wanted nothing to do with the Apostle Paul. Why? They were afraid of him because they had almost scourged a Roman citizen and they had put a Roman citizen in chains. That's a crime. And here the Apostle Paul had waited until the whip was about to come down on his back. He mentions his citizenship. And they release him and they let him go. And it says that the commander, when he found out that he was a Roman, he feared because he found out he was Roman and because he had put him in chains. All of a sudden, you know that Lysias is going to treat him with a lot of respect and deference. Why? Because the Apostle Paul could make life very miserable for Lysias, the violation of his rights. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice how the Lord brought deliverance for the Apostle Paul and he used a very ordinary thing, Roman citizenship. You notice that? Sometimes we think that the only way God can work for us, His people, is that He do miracles and extraordinary things. And we fail to understand and to see that God works for His people, even works deliverance for His people through very ordinary things. Now, if Paul didn't have Roman citizenship, do you think he would have been scourged and killed? No, God would have brought deliverance for him through some other means. Maybe through an angel like He did for Peter when Herod wanted to kill Peter. Maybe through a well-timed earthquake like he did in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. God uses extraordinary things to deliver his people, but he also uses very ordinary things, very providential things. As he rules in his creation and as he rules in his universe, he uses very ordinary things to work for our good. He uses doctors to bring you healing and lawyers to help protect you. He uses teachers to give you an education. He uses your vocation and your citizenship and your calling in this life to work out His extraordinary plan and He does it in a very ordinary way. And sometimes we fail to see the ordinary things that God does. It was just Roman citizenship, a very natural, ordinary, common thing, and God used it to deliver the Apostle Paul from death. Don't think for a moment that He can't use ordinary things to work out by His providence and by His sovereignty your deliverance and your good because He does it all the time. Second thing I want you to notice before we look at Lysias' decision, I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul used his citizenship for his own good. This is only the second time we read about this in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was not the type of person who said, I want my rights. I expect my rights and I expect to be treated like a Roman citizen. He was not the type of person who walked around flaunting his rights, demanding his rights, protecting his rights. But he, neither did he shy away from allowing his rights to work for him if it meant the advance of the gospel and the protection of God's servants. The Apostle Paul did that. But you never get the feeling if his rights were trampled or violated that the Apostle Paul would take it all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary to guard them. He simply allowed his rights to be used by God for his protection and for the advance of the kingdom, but he never got bent out of shape if his rights were violated and he never was the type of person who always inserted, asserted and insisted upon his rights. It wasn't that type of person. We Americans, we are like that, aren't we? We think that if one of our civil rights is taken away, oh, the whole kingdom of heaven will come crashing down and God's plan for the ages will come to a screeching halt. No, it won't. It won't. We should allow our rights to be used by God for the advancement of His kingdom, for the protection of His people. But when our rights are violated, I don't think we should get all bent out of shape over it. I don't think we should get all upset about it. The Apostle Paul didn't. He just let his rights do a little bit of work for him, and he saw it as a blessing from God. It is a blessing from God. 
God has given you your citizenship and God has given you your position and God has given you your vocation for the advancement of his kingdom. And if somebody tramples on your rights, don't get all upset about it. Just graciously and lovingly allow God to use that for his glory. So we looked at the danger that Paul faced and the deliverance that God brought. Now third, I want you to look at verse 30. I want you to look at the decision that Lysias made on the next day. In other words, he kept the Apostle Paul in the barracks overnight to protect him from the Jews, but also because he's still, quote-unquote, sort of a, a, a technically a prisoner of Rome. He kept him in the barracks overnight, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews. He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, and he brought Paul down and he set them before him. Now, Lysias is in quite a pickle, isn't he? He rushed out into the temple to do his civic duty, and he rescued this man from the Jews. Now he's got this guy on his hands who's quite an albatross. What's the cause of all this, he asked him. Can't get to the bottom of it. So he takes him up to the barracks, and Paul asks to address the crowd. Maybe that will give me a clue as to what causes this. He allows Paul to preach to the crowd. Paul preaches in Aramaic, Hebrew. Lysias probably didn't understand everything that was going on there. The crowd goes into a riot, and Lysias realizes he's no closer to an answer than he was in the beginning. So he takes him into the barracks with the intention of scourging him. He's finally going to get to the bottom of it. No, can't. He's a Roman citizen. Everything he's tried to do to handle this situation has become an albatross for him. He still doesn't know why the Jews hated him. Now, you must be asking the same thing that I asked. Why didn't he just ask Paul? Right? He's got Paul in the barracks. It's quiet. The Jews are outside. Why not sit down with the Apostle Paul over a cup of coffee and just say, Paul, what is going on? Why do they hate you so much? If he really wants to get to the bottom of it, why doesn't he just ask Paul? You know what? I think he did ask Paul. But what's Paul going to say? Why do they hate you? Why are they doing this? What have you done? What's Paul going to say? Nothing. I haven't done anything. I was in the temple celebrating Pentecost. I was in the temple performing a Nazarite vow. I haven't done anything to deserve it. Why do they hate you? Because I worship God according to the tradition of our fathers. I, I believe nothing except what the Moses and the prophets said would come to pass. I haven't done anything unlawful. I have, I have fulfilled our religion by believing in the Messiah that God sent. I've done nothing criminal, nothing unlawful. But Lysias can't accept that, nor can he understand that. So he's going to get to the bottom of it, so he makes a decision. He's going to find a way to get to the bottom of what it is that the mob is hating Paul for. But Lysias has determined this. At least he knows this much. The accusations against the Apostle Paul are not political in nature. They're theological in nature. And so the best way to get at the accusations is to take this criminal and put him in the midst of all of the theological mind power of the nation of Israel assembled at the Sanhedrin. Get all of the Pharisees in there. Get all of the Sadducees in there. Get the chief priests and the council of the elders. Get all of those Jews together. Put the Apostle Paul out in the middle of that lion's den and see what happens, and maybe you'll be able to discern what the accusations are against him. That's what Lysias does. And we're going to see what the Apostle Paul does with that next week. But I want you to notice, as we close, three things about the Apostle Paul's example. Listen, friends, in these negative circumstances, Paul did three things that are an example to you and I. First, he absolutely trusted in the sovereign hand of God, that all of this was under God's control and his sovereignty. Never got off kilter. Never got out of balance. Never started to panic. Not once in all of this. Does he start to panic or scream or shout or cry or whine? Why? He just trusted it's in the hand of God. The Spirit said, I'm going to suffer afflictions. And here they are. And this is what the Spirit said was going to come to pass. This is what has come to pass. It's all under God's hand. 
He saw it all as part of the hand of God. Second, the Apostle Paul treated his persecutors with reverence and respect and with love. Brethren and fathers, he says to the crowd. He says to Lysias, may I speak to you? In the barracks, while they're about to scourge him, what does he say? He doesn't scream and demand his rights. He just asks the question, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's Roman and uncondemned? Reverence, respect, love, and honor. He blesses those who persecute him. Blesses and doesn't revile. Just like Jesus, he just suffered unjustly. And he did not revile back, but he simply trusted himself to him who judges righteously. And the third thing that the Apostle Paul did is he took the opportunity to share the saving grace of Christ with those who would listen. He trusted in the sovereign hand of God that all of these circumstances were part of his plan and that God was working something for his good. He treated those who opposed him with reverence, love, and respect. And third, he took the opportunity to seize upon it in order that he might present the gracious gospel of the grace of God to anybody who would listen. And friends, if you and I do those three things in difficult circumstances, then we'd be just like the Apostle Paul and use a situation for our good and for God's glory. But it takes His grace, His grace to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You that You are sovereign. And we thank You that You give us the grace to not revile back, but to entrust ourselves to Him who judges righteously. We thank You that we have a righteous judge in the heavens who loves us and who is working out Your plan for our lives according to for our good and according to Your glory. We thank You that You are good and that you are gracious, and we pray that you would give us the grace to seize every circumstance, good or bad, for the advancement of your message in your kingdom, that we might sovereignly proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. We ask for this grace, and we entrust ourselves to you in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.